This episode is going to focus on Robert Icke's Dutch language production of Oedipus Rex, which is playing, <clears throat> as this episode goes out, at the King's Theatre in Edinburgh as part of the International Festival. I'm recording this on the morning of Thursday the 15th of August 2019. I went and saw it last night. Um, the production, the, sorry, the episode's going to contain spoilers. So if you are going to go and see it, uh, then, you know, please don't listen to this first. I suspect that it will tour or it'll be revived. Um, I should also say that I'm in a slightly odd headspace because I, as I said, I attended the production last night and a lot of what I'm about to say was written and conceived in the immediate aftermath because I wanted to preserve the sensation or some of the sensation that I had um, had produced for me as I watched it, which necessarily impaired my judgment and perhaps my ability to properly articulate or interpret my thoughts, which is essentially me trying to cover my own ass, um, and to say to you that you have been warned. Anyway, without further ado, welcome to Stage Brother, a podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 28, Oedipus in the Age of Post-Truth. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar so anyone who's listened to this podcast before will know that I'm fairly taken with the work of the philosopher Simon Critchley, and I want to start this episode with a fairly lengthy quote from a book of his called Faith of the Faithless, which was a book in which he tried to consider the possibility of a secular version of faith. Critchley, who is an avowed um, atheist, admitted that the operation of faith is something that recurs throughout human history, and it appears to be a necessary phenomenon, something that we cannot quite qualify or quantify, but that we need, and that for some reason faith, the belief in something that does not exist or that cannot be proven, underpins our collective and personal existences. We require it in order to be able to function. Um, this is not, you know, it's not a particularly revolutionary statement. Marx himself said the same thing, that faith is um, a quality of human existence that needs to be accounted for, even and particularly, in fact, in secular societies. So about a third of the way through the book, um, Faith of the Faithless, Critchley argues that faith, and specifically faith in fiction, is at the heart of all political organisations. He says, There is a, w a double miracle at work in politics. On one hand, politics requires a willing suspension of disbelief. It requires that the many believe in the fictions told to them by the few who govern them. That is, government requires make-belief, whether the belief is in the divine right of kings, the quasi-divinity of the people that is somehow meant to find expression through the magic of representative government, the organ of the party, the radiant sun-like will of the glorious leader, or whatever. Government rests on fictions. But, on the other hand, the extraordinary thing about politics is that it not only requires a willing suspension of disbelief, it also receives it. The force in any polity always lies with the many, with the multitude, and yet somehow... For most of history, with certain rare and usually brief, glittering but fleeting exceptions, the many submit to the will of the few, who claim not only to be working in their interest, but to embody their collective will. Um, this is, I've, I've kind of, you know, you get like certain things that you read at various points in your life that return to haunt you. This is one of those things. I've come back to this quote quite a lot over the last few years, and particularly... Um, in the era of what we now identify as post-truth, which is something I'll come back to in a second, this seems to contain quite a lot of an ouch factor. So I started with this quote for a number of reasons. First, 
the idea that government uh, rests on a, a willing suspension of disbelief is a I find a fairly uh, timely reminder that politics and drama in Western democratic societies both come from the same place. Theatre was established at the same time as democracy was established, um, and they're both specifically to do with the organisation and expression of a general populace living in cities. There has always been performance, right? Every society that we're aware of has some kind of performance tradition, whether it's dancing or whether it's ritual. Um, but the idea of theatre as we have it, with the set of, set of conventions involving the staging, involving the forms of narrative, involving the kind of characters, involving the relationship between the actors and the audience, um, and the characters in the audience, these things are a um, model that we have taken from the ancient Greek. And the Greeks developed theatre as, the, as they developed politics, or the kind of democratic politics that we've also taken as the model for many of our political institutions. And they did so in cities, when they started expanding out and building these larger urban conurbations. And cities, because cities represent a challenge to methods of communal living, the sheer volume and diversity of peoples that exist within cities require fairly complex organisational structures to ensure peaceful cohabitation. None of this is, you know, going to be a surprise to anybody, but I, I thought I should lay the ground rules first. So in ancient Greece, the structures that they established in order to ensure peaceful cohabitation um, derived initially from annual rituals in which goats, when they were living in villages before they moved into cities, they would get together um, every year, as indeed most human societies do, and they would perform rituals. And in their rituals, it was goats that were sacrificed. Um, they were first laden with sin, and, well, they didn't call it sin, but laden with the bad things that occurred over the course of the year, and they were then um, cast out, either killed or exiled, from the um, villages. As Greeks moved into cities and built cities, they developed these rituals. And over time, the goats were replaced by symbolic figures that were depicted as suffering on behalf of the many. And that's where tragedy was born. Tragedy is initially, as tragedy apparently translates as the song of the goat, is um, an identification of an individual who is then taken to represent the polis as a whole and whose suffering and usual death, um, although not always, uh, becomes representative of the destruction of the negative aspects of that society so that the society can then go forward to create new things. Tragedy is thus political, and its politics is the politics of the city. So when Critchley talks about the suspension of disbelief as a core value of politics, he's also, although he doesn't, um, it's maybe not important to him, but he's hearkening back to the birth of politics and the birth of drama. Now the second, so that I, bear that in mind, kind of the, the notion that politics and um, theatre, politics and tragedy are blurred at the source. Secondly, to an audience in modern day Britain, the assertion that government rests on fictions is a very, very loaded statement because we currently exist within this bewildering cultural phenomenon that is generally dubbed as post-truth. And I should say at the outset that I absolutely hate the term post-truth. I think it's legitimised something that should have been rubbished from the word go, but because that's not the world that we live in, and because I unfortunately, well, actually, no, fortunately, I'm not in control of these things. Uh, this is what we've got, post-truth. Put briefly, and um, post-truth denotes a historical period in which evidential standards um, as a measure of veracity are, have been abandoned in favour of affective declamations that um, affect and mobilise the general populace. It doesn't matter whether what you say is true, it matters whether what you say is effective, um, is what it kind of boils down to. Post-truth was uh, Oxford English Dictionary in a very kind of charmingly ironic move declared post-truth to be their word of the year six days after the election of Donald John Trump to the office of the US presidency. And wholesale embracing of post-truth, 
this bizarre and toxic phenomenon has made, I would contend, rational debate all but impossible because, and this is why, you know, the, the, we get something called the, the climate change debate, where the rapid ecological deterioration of our planet's ecological systems has been referred to as a debate as if there are two sides to it, as if there, there are valid positions to be held on both sides, whereas, as far as I can tell, there is only one position that actually has anything resembling evidential standards, and what the other side has is a lot of money and shouting. But that doesn't matter, because in an era of post-truth, that being able to back up what you're saying with verifiable fact or something that relates to the wider world and the experience of life as people live it isn't important. What matters is the ability to stir people up into a particular um, response at any given moment using whatever tools are available to you. And because people have been willing, people at the highest levels of government have been willing to use any tools that are available to them, regardless of whether they're true or not, this has corrupted and poisoned the nature of... Um, public debate to the degree where um, the search for truth no longer matters, the search for something that we might collectively understand as truth or be able to argue as truth no longer matters. So to say that government relies on fictions these days is weirdly both entirely accurate and is also a diagnosis of the failure of government itself. We are all aware, I think, that government rests on fictions. Even people that hold completely opposite political beliefs to me, as far as I can tell, seem to accept that government rests on fictions but don't care. And for my own sake, you know, my own political beliefs are often less uh, concerned with verifiable standards than I would like them to be and more concerned with the outrage and horror that I feel at certain situations in the world and how I think they should be best addressed. And so therefore, our awareness of government resting on fictions has created a kind of trenchant tribalism that uh, we're almost more prepared to believe those fictions. In fact, the various studies on post-truth that are being written now, which are often harkening back to psychological experiments done in the 1960s, suggest that we are, that we run towards our political beliefs more so when they are attacked in a way that we feel might be justifiable. So, because we've accepted that government rests on fictions, and so therefore it becomes a question of which fiction is more appealing because there isn't anything other than fiction for us to run towards. This is a fairly controversial statement. I might return to it later, but this is kind of the, the second reason why I wanted to bring this in, was to, to talk about, um, to, to quote Critchley, was to talk about this idea that government resting on fictions is something that is politically charged for us in a way that is very particular to our situation. And it brings me to the third reason for opening with Critchley's quote, which is to do with this, uh, he refers to the submission of the many to the few. And uh, I have to say that that, that, that particular selection of words stings quite a bit these days because, uh, you know, um, for the many, not the few is, of course, the campaign slogan for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, uh, which I've, for a while, and again, this is just my opinion, I had quite a lot of personal sympathy for and hope for, and recently that has uh, been slightly eroded, shall we say, and it's cribbed um, from Percy Shelley's Mask of Anarchy. Uh, where he says, rise like lions after slumber in unvanquishable number, shake your chains to the earth like dew, which in sleep had fallen on you, ye are many, they are few. Very stirring, rabble-rousing stuff, right? But yet Corbyn's revolution doesn't seem to have worked. He, the change that he sought, he sought to, brought, to bring about in political discourse, which in some senses I, I think was actually quite laudable, this idea of uh, relating Prime Minister's question times to actual questions at, asked by members of the electorate, but what it became eventually was oh, rapidly was a pantomime. And so I find myself mystified and demoralised and helpless in the face of the many in Britain who continue to vote for policies and politicians openly, as far as I can see, working against their interests and in favour of the increasingly small and privileged few. Uh, so, 
which I, I will try to roll back on my own political opinions for a moment, but I should you know, say as ever that this show is very objective. Uh, objective? No, it's not objective. It's very subjective, and I make no bones about that because I don't think I can talk from a position that is anything else. Anyway, into this decentered, demoralized, and increasingly fictionalized modern world, uh, we get Robert Icke's reimagining of Oedipus Rex, which I will say from the outset that I consider an utterly spectacular piece of theatre, one that I felt enormously privileged to have witnessed. And it was really quite lovely to, to have that feeling, because it's something Howard Barker, the British playwright, um, his position on audiences is that they are privileged to witness the work of art. And it is not the job of the playwright or anybody involved in the production to pander to their whims, but rather to present something to them that is the best thing that they can present. And the audience is then uh, at liberty to respond in whatever way they see fit. It is a very tricky um, statement because it kind of flies in the face of a lot of what theatre in Britain tends to do, which is of necessity to need to survive in a economic climate where they have to attract audience members. And so for people to you know, put on whatever they want to and sod whatever the audience thinks is a kind of route to failure. And it should be noted that Barker himself has not had massive success in Britain, although, you know, when his work is staged in, in um, high profile productions, as occasionally it is, it tends to do very well. Um, but in this instance, I actually did feel I went to see it and I felt privileged and quite grateful that these people had made this piece of theatre and put it on in front of me and that I had then been permitted to come and see it. It was an honour. Um, and I, Because I think they did a spectacular job of rethinking uh, a two and a half thousand year old play into a text that stages a, what I believe is a political intervention into the strange cities, the strange polis of the world that I inhabit. So Ike's production begins with a speech um, a video production of a speech delivered by Oedipus, the politician, um, who is seeking democratic election, and it's election day. Uh, he's standing in uh, streets outside his campaign headquarters, surrounded by um, crowds of fans who are cheering him on, who've all got banners and slogans, and um, who he refers to as his children. The posters that are uh, around him are done up in the style of Barack Obama, with that kind of, you know, uh, the cartoony... Um, aesthetic and the primary colours that were used in that kind of yes we can uh, vote for hope thing. And he also refers to his decision to release his birth certificate. He says uh, in his speech, which it turns out later on is mostly improvised, that what should it matter where a person is born, but of course as soon as I'm elected I will release my birth certificate. So there is a clear um, anchoring of Oedipus's premiership and his campaign to the premiership of uh, to the presidential uh, campaign uh, of Barack Obama. Uh, it should be said that this kind of the improvisation um, proves the initial sticking point between him and Crayon, who is his wife's brother, but is also his senior political aide, because Crayon has written him a speech and he's gone completely off speech. He also says in this speech that he is going to reopen the investigation into the death of Laius, who is the a, a former king of the country that he's running for office in. It's never specified exactly which country this is, although uh, Jocasta, his wife, refers to it as being the job that he's about to have as being the most powerful man in the world. So. We're not, although the, the lang it's a Dutch language production, the implication, I think, is that we're talking more about a United States kind of um, operation here than uh, the Netherlands. Now, in Sophocles' play, uh, Oedipus takes place in the time of plague. That gives the, uh, the narrative its dramatic impetus. Oedipus, uh, in Sophocles' version, is king and has to investigate the death of Laius because... Uh, people are dying, and Creon uh, goes to the oracle at Delphi and returns with a message from the gods saying that in order for the plague to be, um, to, for the plague to cease, to, for the plague to be cured, 
you have to find out who killed Laius. Now, in this one, there is no oracle. There is no religious prophecy. Rather, Oedipus identifies a plague as political corruption. He says that we are sick. The populace is sick. The wrong people have been in charge for too long and have made the wrong decisions. And he doesn't go so far as to say, I will cure us, or indeed, I am the only person who can cure us, which is precisely what Donald John Trump said when he accepted his party's nomination for the Republican candidacy for the presidency. Um, he said, you know, I, I alone can save us. But there is, again, an implication of this. So uh, Oedipus is attaching himself, or the, rather the production is attaching Oedipus to the, the presidency of Obama and Trump kind of at the same time. Um, and the what's quite what's remarkable here is that Oedipus proposing himself as the corrective, as the cure, is a neat example of what Derrida sees in Plato's pharmakos. The, the pharmakos is uh, where we get the word pharmacy from, pharmaceuticals, and of course it, it is therefore taken to mean cure. But in Plato, it also means the thing that poisons. It is a, po a thing that poisons as it cures. And that is exactly what Oedipus is, because in his pursuit of the truth of who killed Laius, which he declares, he will discover that he killed Laius, and that he, therefore, is the corruption, or part of the corruption that has been eating away at the state. By entering into the highest office and seeking truth and putting the, the, the search for truth at the epicenter of his activities, of his um, political administration, Oedipus is going to bring the edifice down around himself with him at the centre. And it's worth noting uh, as well that pharmakos is the ancient Greek term for scapegoat, which is the figure that is sacrificed instead of the city itself. And of course that scapegoat is based on the goats that were sacrificed in the annual rituals that, um, in, the, in the kind of villages and towns in Greece before they became city-states. So Oedipus is identifying himself as a scapegoat right at the beginning of the play, even though he doesn't realize it. So what we have in these opening moments is uh, a politician who is dressed in the clothes of both Barack Obama and Donald Trump, and is one of the many examples where the play has managed quite ingeniously to rethink the conditions of a an ancient tragedy in the language of today's political discourses. After the video finishes, the curtain goes up, and it goes up on the interior of a campaign headquarters, which is a kind of... Um, you can tell that it's been very much used. There is kind of the discarded posters and polling data in various corners. There are TV screens that are showing pundits discussing the election results, which will be there for the majority of the time. There are the disposable, uh, collapsible tables and chairs. There is the little kitchenette over to one side with a kettle and so on. Um, it is a temporary residence. And Oedipus and his family and his team are inhabiting that residence for one last meal while they wait for the results. And it was a simple staging decision that I absolutely loved, which is that here, throughout the play, people are packing the set away. They're carrying off boxes, they're rolling off carpets and so on, until the stage is largely bare. The only thing that remains in the last scenes of the play is the carpet and the kitchenette to one side, and the three large swing doors that have been there throughout the whole thing, which are a very kind of... Uh, they, work, they work really well. It's like they're... Um, they're kind of screens, they're, they're the disposable screens that you get that you put up in office blocks in order to create the illusion of privacy. But but they can be spun on their axis, and so therefore that you've got these moments where people like walk through them and just leave them spinning. Um, and the implication of the packing of a campaign headquarters is the suggestion that a new and more permanent residence is being anticipated once the newly minted president will move to the Houses of Parliament or the White House or wherever it is that he's going. But of course the audience know that the packing up of the building signifies precisely the opposite. And rather, what is being shown here is the gradual decimation of Oedipus himself and his administration, so that when he finally understands his plight, 
and his fate, he does so in an empty building, which no longer houses the trappings of his office or state. This is underscored by a large LED clock in one corner that counts down over the course of the show until the moment that Jocasta informs him that they are mother and son as well as husband and wife. And I was actually worried about this because I've seen, I saw one of Robert Icke's uh, productions before. Uh, it was head, he was working with um, Headlong, did a production of Romeo and Juliet, and they, they used clocks in that. And I tend to find when clocks get used in productions that I focus more on them than on the action, or more on them than I should. But in this production, because the action was so engrossing, because I was so absorbed in what was happening, I often forgot that there was a clock in one corner until it started beeping. Now, largely, the um, the religious aspects of uh, the play were taken out. Nobody, as I said, nobody went to the Oracle at Delphi. Uh, instead, they consult exit polls or they watch televised debates. Tiresias makes an appearance, the um, the prophet, the hermaphrodite prophet, prophet, actually, in the original mythology, although here, as usually now, uh, represented as an old man who is blind and therefore can see. And there's the, uh, Oedipus is, is the play that sets the template for this dramatic device where blindness is equated with sight, and sight itself can be equated with blindness. The same thing happens in King Lear. Um, Tiresias turns up and delivers his doom-laden predictions to Oedipus, as he always does, which is that you will discover that you are the person that you seek, that you um, kill your father, and you've had sex with your mother, and that you are condemned. And Oedipus, as always, doesn't listen. Uh, he feels that it is, in this case, a uh, political trap that has been sprung by Creon, his senior aide. He feels that Creon has paid Tiresias to come and tell him this, and this leads to a kind of hostile confrontation with Creon, which also um, leads to Tiresias being kicked out and Creon uh, being fired from his job as a speechwriter. But God is largely absent. And this is something that I've often found <clears throat> contemporary adaptations of Greek tragedies can struggle with, because um, for the Greeks, the operation of fate is bound up with the divine. And that, that kind of conflict between the, the, the divine and the individual provides the, the impetus for the plays. Is Oedipus condemned by the gods, or is he an agent acting of his own volition? In fact, he's both, because what he receives is a religious uh, prophecy, and he determines uh, that he will fight against that prophecy, and by fighting against that prophecy, he only binds himself more and more and more in it. There's also this question of whether or not Oedipus is condemned from the word go, because what he does is his character. It's not so much a choice, really, with him. It's like he absolutely has to know. There is something burning within him that he cannot um, fight against, or that he cannot change. And actually, to fight against it or to change it would be a betrayal of himself. And so, therefore, in order to be true to himself, he must condemn himself, which leads us back to the question of fate. And this is one of the reasons why tragedies have been so um, widely performed and studied over the course of their history, is that they present us with these absolutely impossible situations that people are continually grappling with. And these are the things that we grapple with as humans. And so, therefore, um, uh, Critchley, it's one of the reasons I quite like him, is that he says, as far as he's concerned, often what's going on in ancient tragedy is more interesting than what's going on in ancient philosophy, because the tragedians found ways to stage um, philosophical debates for their audiences. And it's also one of the reasons I think tragedy is so remarkable that it still gets performed today. Um, and in later periods, so as kind of people have rediscovered and rewritten tragedy since the ancient Greeks, often what happens is that they will replace religious aspects or the aspects of the divine with whatever it is that is most influential in their societies. Recently, of course, for us, this would be the state. 
Um, and that's why kind of, you know, Arthur Miller becomes the great tragedy of the 20th century in America, because what he writes is the individual against the American dream rather than the individual against God. Um, where am I? Anyway, yeah, so in this production, uh, Ike and his team managed to move away from the, the question of whether or not Oedipus is cursed by the gods by apparently focusing on the ways in which the apparatuses of government have replaced the institutions of religion in today's Western industrial democracies. When Oedipus addresses the adoring crowd at the beginning of the play and calls them his children, it feels as if he himself is aspiring to some form of godhead, which, of course, provides the, the hubristic pinnacle, the kind of, you know, pride comes before a fall, and this is absolute pride of aspiring to be a god. And, of course, then he does fall. And there is this um, kind of, it's like an inversion of a pyramid in Greek tragedies. It's the person that rises to the top has the furthest to fall, and therefore they become the person that uh, is sacrificed instead of the city. In some ways, they become the city. And so when Oedipus talks about we are sick and I will provide the cure, he's right. He just doesn't know in what way he will provide the cure because he will become the absolute manifestation of that sickness. And this, and the absolute manifestation of the sickness is through the kind of thirst for power that he demonstrates. It's through this um, subscription to the fiction of the political reality that we all kind of participate in, which is that we elevate people to, to these statuses of not exactly gods, although I'm sure that uh, certain politicians would like to think of themselves as such but of a power over us. And in tragedy, the assumption of that position, of that power, then identifies you as the person who is to be sacrificed. It is somewhat satisfying to think of contemporary politicians being sacrificed, but that's probably a rant for another time. Anyway, um, so what, but what I also found appealing about this production is that they balanced this huge political... Um, narrative with a personal domestic narrative that was really well fleshed out. The British playwright Edward Bond is fond of saying that drama should be on the kitchen table and at the edge of the universe, and it should be in both places at the same time. He also goes on to say that if you're a, that you understand this completely if you are a seven-year-old child and you don't understand it at all if you're an adult, which I really like. And that's kind of what I think they were doing is that they had this edge of the universe stuff, this aspirations to Godhead, the political narrative that. Um, sees one person becoming emblematic of the entire polis of the entire nation in order to then be sacrificed for the um, sake of that nation. But they also had a very clear focus on his family life, or rather on their family life, because actually uh, I found often Jocasta, his wife, to be a much more interesting character than he was. Um, and I was drawn into the world because I kind of believed it, um, weirdly, it was a. They, Ike made quite a lot out of the fact that this was done in real time. It wasn't exactly done in real time because the clock at some point sped up, and no one seems to have mentioned this. But about twenty minutes before the end, I noticed that the clock was going faster than it should be, and it was slightly disorienting at first. But then, of course, it, it made sense because at, at that point, the narrative starts to escalate, and the um, stakes are revealed to the characters as being absolute, and the things that they're about to lose, they start kind of. Um, uh, to be made apparent to them. Um, and there was a one of the, the kind of most remarkable, well, I've said remarkable too often. I hate the language of hyperbole. It's, you, I'm in the middle of the bloody Edinburgh Fringe and you go through Princess Street or the Royal Mile or whatever, you see the posters with the um, salutations from the great and the good on them and they all used about the same 20 words in order to demonstrate how remarkable or spectacular or brilliant or awe-inspiring or mould-breaking or game-changing this particular thing is. And the problem is I'm doing exactly the same thing, so I'm just criticising myself. Anyway, 
there is a scene in this production which doesn't occur at all in Sophocles, uh, in which the entire family sits down to a dinner. And it happens about a third of the way in. Um, they have this dinner, and they have a dinner of chicken, chips, salad, and mayonnaise. And they all have this kind of chant that they've clearly done on multiple dinners beforehand, uh, where they spell it out in order to celebrate how wonderful this extremely banal uh, food is. Which was really quite appealing, uh, partly because I like chips and mayonnaise, but also partly because it just cemented them together as a family. And then they, they sat and they had this chaotic dinner scene in which... Uh, all manner of personal stories, from the infidelity of one son who was at university to the homosexuality of another son, where his father actually outs him in front of the entire family in a rather cruel fashion, but uh, does so with the best of intentions to say, I love you, we love you, that you should be, well, you are free to love whoever you want to, it's only you who makes that choice. Uh, to the Oedipus's mother, or adopted mother, although he doesn't know yet, who's there, is a very kind of doer figure, um, has arrived, his, his adopted father is dying of cancer in hospital, Crayon is sulking in the corner because he's just been fired. And they, and it, they, they very sensibly, I think, stretch this out, they allow it to breathe, they just kind of, the narrative takes a backseat for a while, and you watch the operation of this, you know, dysfunctional, but functional, ridiculous, and slightly odd, but actually quite creditable family doing the thing that families do, which is eating and bickering. And um, and through this, Jocasta kind of started to emerge as one of the, the key uh, presences, the key forces. A woman uh, who is deeply flawed, who loves her children, who um, is completely infatuated with her husband. And that, that was... It, that was something that I discussed with the person I went to see it with that they found quite um, disturbing was the way in which this production emphasised sex. And I realise that that's a, an aspect of Oedipus in the productions that I've seen, which is often treated quite warily, and it's, of course it's understandable that a sexual relationship between the two protagonists, mother and son, um, is difficult to stomach. We know that Oedipus is incestuous, but the idea of valorising incest as a loving and in fact healthily loving practice is one of the big problems that this play continues to throw at us two and a half thousand years after it was written. The idea of a son and his mother enjoying an entire marriage of loving and sexual fulfilment, which is what they have done, is intolerable. And this, I think, more than the act of patricide, makes Oedipus in the end such a repellent character. And in this, in Ike's production, they don't pull any punches. Oedipus and Jocasta are enormously attracted to each other, and they instigate, in fact, a sex act on stage in front of the audience after the children have gone off to get changed. Um, and then when they realise they're going to be interrupted, they both disappear off to a room somewhere to shag, uh, and the rest of the characters run around looking for them, and then eventually they return. Um, Jocasta, later on, delivers a very long story about the nature of her relationship with Laius, um, and it transpires that she was 13 years old and raped. Um, she was then uh, she was pregnant, she delivered the baby, he had the baby taken away from her, uh, she thought it was going to be killed, well, it was going to be killed, so she told his bodyguard to go and take it into the woods and give it a chance. And what this does is, of course, it leaves us with no sympathies whatsoever for the old king, and when it's revealed that Oedipus killed Laius, in, in this case, in a car accident, it doesn't feel like he's done much to be worthy of being condemned. You get the sense that this is something that he could very easily recover from politically, and, well, maybe politically, but certainly personally, because of the way in which his wife refers to her ex-husband, or, you know, slaver, is the term that really should be used here. And so that deprioritizes the, the, the patricide aspect of the play and focuses more on the incestuous relationship with the mother. And 
when she finally, and it is Jocasta, not Oedipus, uh, who realises the, incest, the, the incestuous relationship, when she declares that she is his mother, they have a moment where they return to a sexual embrace. And through a very strange and painful piece of choreography, very beautifully done as well, they move from the beginning of a sex act to Oedipus curled up in fetal position with his head between his mother's legs. They then separate and they dress in the formal attire that they've been given to celebrate the political victory that is announced moments afterwards. And actually, and this was stunning, there was a moment where I wondered whether they were going to completely queer the ending and have Jocasta not complete her act of suicide, nor Oedipus' act of blinding, and rather have them beat the forces that have compelled them to this point. And a treacherous part of me was saying, and why not? Really, why not? Because, you know, given that so much of the play has been spent declaring that an individual is responsible for the, whom they love and nobody else, why should they not be allowed to do so? That, you know, the, the, the scene where Oedipus talks to his son um, and his son uh, says, thank you for, you know, for what you've said about uh, my homosexuality and, and for not judging me. And Oedipus says, well, why would I judge you? This is your body, your life. You get to choose who you love. All I, all I care about is whether or not you're happy. If that was true, then surely the same logic could apply to Oedipus and his mother. But of course it isn't true, because the play is about the ways in which the individual is identified, regulated and controlled by the systems around them, whether those systems are religious or, in this case, political or as you know, domestic. Um, it doesn't matter. That's what tragedy always is. It's the individual against impersonal forces that will destroy them. And the action is derived from the individual fighting those forces above and beyond the levels of what is reasonable or sane. But of course, if they had, um, if they'd had a happy ending, it would have missed the point of the play, which is that Oedipus must fall. He must be sacrificed as a scapegoat, a pharmacos, in order to bring about the destruction of the old world uh, and the creation of a new one. That's uh, the term for that, by the way, is scandalon, which I gather translates as something like stumbling block, which is where the uh, the remain the excremental remains of the scapegoat's body may be used as the cornerstone for the new world, and this is the device on which tragedy ultimately turns. Tragedy is not about the destruction of all points of reference for its own sake, but about the destruction of all points of reference for the sake of what comes after. In the, um, you know, the Oedipus is, is part one of a trilogy, and in the, the following plays, you see, um, in Oedipus, a colonist, you see him being cast out of the city and the way in which his continued presence um, manifests the rot that had been at the heart of Thebes. And then in the third play, Antigone, you see the... Uh, the way in which the state comes down on the on well the body and life of Oedipus's daughter as she fights for the burial rights for her son. Um, what I love about this production is that it seemed to find a way to insinuate itself in our political reality, um, which is, as I've said, a very strange one in which um, fiction has overtaken anything resembling verifiable or quantifiable fact or evidence. Um, and therefore, it seems inescapably cyclical, right? How do you ever get out of a world in which the only things that you can rely upon are things that are openly made up? There is no platform, no stable basis upon which to build or construct anything. It's just the creation of more fictions. And therefore, there is no hope for change. And that is something that I find terrifying about the world in which we live, that we have moved to a position in which we are so bound within open fictions that the people in charge of those fictions continue to be able to bend the will of the many to the will of the few simply by dint of saying things that they have no intention of backing up or manifesting but that sound good and so 
these societies, our societies, I think, and bear in mind, as I said, this is just my opinion, but you know, this is all I've got to go on, um, seem to be continually degrading or degenerating. But in this production, the act of sacrifice and condemnation that it demonstrated was a very welcome reminder that the ancient Greeks, through the blending of theatre and politics in their cities, found models for the articulation of change. And, you know, their societies were no less based on fiction than ours were, because, well, I suppose it depends on your take on religion, but they were no less based on um, things that could not be proved, let's say, than ours are. But by looking at their societies through these mechanisms, through the ideas of sacrifice, through the ideas of um, the fall, through the ideas of the pharmakos, the thing that poisons even as it cures, they were able to find ways to articulate hope for change. And that if we look at their arguments in the light of our world, then we might be able to do the same thing. It's a very lofty thought, and it only lasted for a moment as I was sitting in the auditorium um, in the King's Theatre as the curtain went down. But this is why I felt honoured to see the production. Um, this is why, or this is one of the reasons why it affected me so much. There is lots I haven't talked about. I mean, I haven't mentioned the stagecraft. I haven't mentioned the acting, which was generally of an enormously high quality. I haven't talked as much as I would have wanted to about the ways in which the play um, explored questions of sex and, sex, sex and sexuality. But I've tried a little bit to articulate why I think this production was important. Um, and I hope that some of it has made sense. And... Thank you for listening. So fly when you're back and go dream of the seas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks, be king for a day. Do you realize kings do have a price they can't?